It was the early morning hours on Monday, April the 16th, 2007, when a student at Virginia Tech University entered Norris Hall and opened gunfire. When the smoke settled, 32 individuals had been brutally murdered and many others have been wounded. Since that time, we have witnessed the all too frequent event of mass shootings on school campuses. Dr. Tommy McDeerus is the pastor at Blacksburg Baptist Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. In the aftermath of that tragic event, he wrote an article that was published in Preaching Magazine. And in that article, he said, there were more than one individual who would come up to me for counseling. And in the course of our conversation, they would say something like this. It feels like God took a day off on Monday. Does human suffering ever go unnoticed by God? Over the last few weeks, our minds have been captivated by the suffering in Syria. After eight years of civil war, the national regime has utilized chemical weapons upon their own civilians. The result is that more than 500 innocent men, women, and children have died. Hospitals have been bombed. Schools have been destroyed. Senseless slaughtering of human life has littered the streets. There are people in that nation, individuals across the globe, who are asking the question, does human suffering ever go unnoticed by God? Whether it's on a campus in the United States of America, whether it's in a foreign country, does human suffering ever go unnoticed by God? It was Ernest Hemingway who said, life breaks everyone. At some point, life breaks us, barges in, leaving us crippled and broken. How do you handle the suffering that barges in in your life? Sometimes suffering is found in our zip code. Sometimes suffering parks itself right at our address. How do you handle the suffering that it doesn't just meander through the vicinity where you live, but rudely barges in the front door and takes you hostage. How do you handle the suffering that comes in unannounced and uninvited and takes over your life? Sometimes that suffering can take the form of a debilitating disease, the death of a loved one, spouse, child, grandparent. Sometimes that overwhelming suffering can take the form of lengthy unemployment, marital problems, parental woes. What do you do when suffering takes up residence where you live? How do you handle the suffering that leaves you bound hostage? How do you handle it when life breaks you? Have you ever asked the question, maybe not verbalized, but you've thought it to yourself, does my human suffering ever go unnoticed by God? It seems as if he's not paying attention. It seems as if he doesn't care. It seems as if God has forgotten who I am and where I am. Does my human suffering ever go unnoticed by God? Today, we begin a 10-part sermon series on the life of Moses. I realize that sometimes when you hear the name Moses, Hollywood images are conjured in your mind. You begin to think about 
Charlton Heston in the infamous movie, The Ten Commandments. Others of you begin to visualize that animated cartoon, The Prince of Egypt, where Moses is always depicted as a fun-loving, quick-witted, never-aging cartoon character. Yet I want to tell you that the biblical Moses, he's not Charlton Heston, nor is he the voice of Val Kilmer. No, the biblical Moses is a man who is familiar with suffering and sadness. He's well aware of sorrow. He is an Israelite, and the Israelites in his day and time suffered greatly. And some of them must have asked the question, does our human suffering ever go unnoticed by God? Moses was born and raised during the darkest days of Israel's history. By the time Moses walks across the pages of Scripture, the Hebrews have been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. Moses is the son of two Israelites, both of them descendants of the tribe of Levi. It's at this time in Israel's history when Pharaoh is so paranoid that he looks at the ever-growing number of Hebrew slaves and he issues this command. He says, every Hebrew baby boy has to be thrown into the Nile River. Now, Mama Moses isn't about to throw her bouncing baby boy into the Nile River. For the first three months, she hides him in the slave quarters. Now, that's a minor miracle in and of itself. Many of you know what it is to live during the days of a newborn. Many of you know what it is because you're living in those days right now. Some of you can remember living during those days when you had a precious newborn in your house. And you realize and you remember the frequency and the volume of those blood-curling screams at 2 o'clock in the morning. And it, it always amazed me how so much noise can come out of such a little mouth. And it can wake up the entire household and the entire neighborhood. Yet Mama Moses kept Moses nice and quiet in the slave quarters. That lasted about three months. And then she realized she could hide him no longer. So she devised a plan. She crafted a papyrus ark. She placed her baby in that floating bassinet, sent him down in the reeds of the Nile River at that precise location where the daughter of Pharaoh routinely would take her bath. Mama Moses had the forethought to place her daughter Miriam right there on the banks of the Nile so that when Pharaoh's daughter discovered the basket, uh, Miriam could show up and say, hey, I'll go and get a Hebrew slave woman to help nurse this child. And sure enough, the plan was executed just the way Mama Moses wanted it to go down. Moses was placed in the floating basket, placed right there in the reeds of the Nile River. Sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter and her servants discovered that baby boy and her, her heart broke. Miriam miraculously appeared there on the bank, said, hey, I will volunteer to go fetch a Hebrew woman to nurse this child. Of course, she went and found her mother, came back, and the daughter of Pharaoh said, I'll even pay you to do it. For the next few years, Mama Moses was right there with her precious baby boy. But after a couple of years, once Moses was weaned, it came time for him to be officially adopted into the royal family. So she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. It's Pharaoh's daughter who gives him the name Moses. Moses means to be drawn out from the water. So she gave him the name Moses and he was adopted into the royal family. It's Josephus, the 
first century Jewish historian who tells us with great accuracy that this particular Pharaoh had no sons. Therefore, Moses really was being groomed as the next king of Egypt. Moses was going to be the one. He was the rising star in the royal family. Undoubtedly, Moses had a tremendous education. He was well advanced in deep understanding of Egyptian hieroglyphics. He understood Egyptian literature and art, science, mathematics. He was well versed in advanced medical and uh, uh, military tactics. By the time Moses grows to manhood, uh, he, he looks like an Egyptian. His head is shaved. His body is chiseled. He has the appearance of an Egyptian. He, he looks like an Egyptian. He, he talks and communicates like an Egyptian. And oh yes, he walks like an Egyptian. <laughs> Everything about Moses looks and acts Egyptian except he realizes that he has an identity crisis because he's not an Egyptian. He knows this. He knows that these are not his people. His people are being enslaved. They had been for hundreds of years. And, and Moses had an identity crisis. There was a wrestling match that was going on inside of him. He knew that he was not who he proclaimed to be. He knew there was a wrestling match. He did not live like his people. He did not live with his people, but his heart broke for his people. You see, Moses had the heart of a deliverer from the very beginning. He watched from a distance at first how the Egyptian taskmasters treated the Hebrew slaves. On occasion, he would go out into the field. He would see what was going on. There was one particular day that he had had enough. Anger welled up inside of him. He took matters into his own hands. It's at this point that we catch up with our story. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his, his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the trough to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son. Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, 
And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. It was that deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who stands before the Sanhedrin and gives a recounting of Israel's history. It's Stephen who tells us that Moses was 40 years of age when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. He fled to the Midian desert, stayed there an additional 40 years because he was 80 years old when God spoke to him through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. It's the author of Deuteronomy who tells us that Moses died at the ripe old age of 120. All of this has caused D.L. Moody to surmise this statement. That Moses, for the first 40 years of his life, was a somebody. For the next 40 years of his life, he was a nobody. And for the final 40 years of his life, he discovered what God could do with a nobody and make him into a somebody. That is Moses' statement of faith. That's his story. That's his testimony. During the first 40 years of his life, Moses was a somebody. He lived in the lap of luxury. He was the prince of Egypt. He was right there in line to be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. But yet he had that internal struggle. One day he went out and he saw an Egyptian taskmaster brutally beating a Hebrew slave. Anger welled up inside of him. He struck the Egyptian and killed him with his own hands. Then he buried him in the sand. Now you can try to defend the actions of Moses. You can say, well, he was really kind of doing a good thing. He was defending one of his own people. But at the end of the day, he murdered somebody. And he knows that it's not good and it's not right. And it's, it's breaking the very heart and law of God. That's why he tries to bury the evidence in the sand. Since the Garden of Eden, you and I have been trying to bury our disobedience. We've been trying to bury the evidence of our sin. You and I, since the Garden of Eden, we have been a people who've been trying to just dismiss our disobedience. This calls Mark Twain to say that all of us are like the moon. We all have a dark side that we don't want anybody to see. And so we do our best to bury the dark side. We do our best to put down in the ground uh, anything that is of disobedience to God and we don't want anybody else to know our secret. That's what Moses did. He thought no one was watching. He killed the Egyptian. He buried the evidence in the ground. The next day he went back out and he found two Hebrews fighting. He went up and he separated them and said, guys, what are you doing? Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the one who was in the wrong said to the prince of Egypt, who made you ruler and judge over us? What, you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And with that statement, a cold chill went up and down the spine of Moses he realized somebody had seen. Somebody had caught it on tape. Maybe somebody had captured it on their smartphone. You know those new iPhones, they got some great cameras. So maybe somebody out there captured it on the smartphone and said, and they posted it and they said, hey, look, look what Moses did. Moses understood that there would be an investigation. The Egyptians would point fingers at the Israelites. The Israelites would then point fingers back to Moses. So Moses has to get out of Dodge. He's got to leave. He can't stay. He's got a murder rap. So where does he go? 
He goes to the one place where he's convinced that Pharaoh will not follow him. It is the God-forsaken, dry, arid desert to the east of Egypt called Midian. He goes to Midian because nobody lives there. He goes to Midian because there is no vegetation. There is no life. There is no sustenance. There's nothing. Pharaoh and his army would be fools to follow him into the desert. That is a God-forsaken place. So he goes to Midian. He traveled for several days. He actually found a well. And as he was seated at the well trying to catch his breath, he looked over one horizon and here came seven women. They're seven sisters. He didn't know that at first. But he saw them coming and they were coming to draw water not only for themselves, their families, but also for their father's flocks. He looked over in the opposite direction and here came a bunch of redneck Midianite shepherds. They too were coming to get some water from the well. Now those shepherds had no manners. They did not operate ladies first. No, they bullied their way to the front of the line. When Moses saw that, anger rose up inside of him. Moses has a problem with anger. It usually gets him in trouble. It will continue to get him in trouble. But Moses is one who never stands for a social injustice. He will not just sit back and take it. He's one that bows up, gets involved. And so he pushes and shoves them away, drives those rednecks uh, away from the well and helps the ladies come and draw water. He doesn't just allow them to come in and draw the water, but he does it for them. He's a very uh, polite gentleman. So he draws water for them and for their families. He even waters the sheep. By the time they get back home, their father, who elsewhere is called Jethro, their father says, why have you returned so quickly? This is a fast round trip. This is something you do every day. And usually it takes you hours to do this, but why are you back so soon? And they said, well, this very nice Egyptian was out there at the well. He helped us. In fact, he drove away some redneck shepherds and he helped us get water. And so here we are. And we're back at just a record time. And Jethro said, and why did you leave him at the well? He could help us. He could be a great hand here at the house. And in fact, why didn't y'all just do a little wink and nod? You know, just kind of be flirtatious just a bit. Invite him home because everybody knows the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So why don't you guys just invite him back to the house and we can have a meal for him. Go back and get him. So they go back and they find Moses. He's still there at the well. They invite him home. Now this is pretty good luck, right? Moses thought he was going to a desert, a God-forsaken place, a place where there'd be no people. Yet he found shelter in this man's household. Jethro said to him, would you like to stay with us? And Moses says, well, you're about all I got. So yeah, I guess I will. He says, hey, I'll, I'll give you the prettiest of my daughters. I'll give you Zipporah as your wife. And Moses thought, well, okay. Don't have anything else going on. Sounds fine to me. So then they get married, they settle down, they start a family. She gives him a bouncing baby boy. Moses names him. He gives him the name Gershom. This tells us a little bit about the psyche of Moses in this moment. Gershom means I'm an alien. I'm in a foreign land. In other words, he's a misfit. He's in a, a dead-end place with a dead-end life, a dead-end family. He feels as if he's God forsaken. 
He's not only in a desert physically, but also in a desert desert spiritually. And when he has this, this bouncing baby boy, the only thing on his mind is, I'm a misfit. I'm an alien. I'm in a foreign land. I should not be here. Life should not have gone this way. And there must have been a moment when he asked the question, does my human suffering go unnoticed by God? Does God even know who I am? Does God even know where I am? Does God even know what's going on in my life? Does God even know the suffering that's in my mind? Does he realize that I feel like a misfit, out of place, out of sorts, out of touch? You ever felt like Moses? You ever been in that place like Midian? I'm quite certain that this was not the career path that Moses had envisioned. I mean, sure, he was born a Hebrew slave, but he was raised in the lap of luxury. He had the greatest education. He had the greatest house. For him to go from the slave quarters to Pharaoh's palace would be like going from Calcutta to Buckingham Palace. I mean, this is a turnabout. This is great. For the first 40 years of life, he's got everything that anybody could ever desire. But even all that life could offer was not enough. He wasn't satisfied. He had an identity crisis. He knew this is not who he was. He tried to take matters into his own hands. It it backfired. It didn't go well. So he had to run to a God-forsaken place. He can't go back to Egypt. He's got a murder rap. He, He has a wife and She doesn't share his same upbringing, his same religion. He's got a son, and every time he calls that son's name, it reminds him, I'm a misfit. I don't belong here. I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. I mean, every time he called him to dinner, every time he called him to help, every time he called him to say, hey, what's going on? Every time he said the name Gershom, it was a constant reminder, this is not how life is supposed to go. And I wonder, does God even know or God even care? He was in Midian. Ironically, the name Midian, which is the desert place, the name Midian literally means a place of turmoil, struggle, and strife. He was living out the desert. He was right there in the midst of struggle, in the midst of strife. I'm sure there must have been times when he wondered, does God care? Does God even know who I am and where I am? I think Moses probably asked that. I know Chad asked that. Uh, Chad was a 25-year-old man, and the doctor told him, you have an inoperable brain tumor. Stephanie asked that. When she was told that her five-year-old son had leukemia, Bob asked that. When he learned that his Firstborn son was brutally murdered in the restaurant. Rachel asked that. When her husband of some 18 years sat her down and said, I don't love you anymore and there's somebody else. Gladys asked that. She'd been married for 57 years and yet she recently buried her husband and now she feels lost in a sea of responsibilities. God, do you care? God, do you know what's going on? God, I feel out of sorts and out of place. Does my human suffering go unnoticed by God? Have you ever felt that way? Chances are you probably have. The very next line of our story says that during that long period of time, 40 years to be exact, during that long period of time, Pharaoh died. 
And the Israelites cried out to God because of their slavery. And their cries because of their slavery went up to God. And then Exodus chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. God heard their groaning. He remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked upon the Israelites in their misery, and he was concerned about them. I don't know about you, but I think some of my new favorite verses of Scripture have now become Exodus chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Those four verbs describe God accurately and passionately, that God heard their groaning, that uh, God remembered the covenant that he made, that God looked upon them in their misery and God was concerned about them. Those four verbs seem to describe with vivid clarity who God is and how he acts in the lives of his people. Now stop and think about this. The Israelites have been in slavery for hundreds of years. Before Pharaoh died, after he died, they prayed. They prayed in their distress. They prayed in their hard work. They prayed in their labor. They prayed in their frustration that even though their circumstances were lousy, their faith in God was still strong. They prayed even when life was tough. They prayed especially when life was tough. And for hundreds of years, they prayed for God to step in and save the day. And there were times that generations of people were born in slavery and they died in slavery and they never were delivered physically. That tells me that sometimes the prayer, the one doing the praying, may die. But the prayer, that which is offered by the person, will never die. Sometimes the one doing the praying, the prayer, that prayer may die. Some people, numerous people, they were born in slavery and they died in slavery. And yet that still did not keep them from offering up their prayers unto God. And they prayed earnestly because of their groaning. They prayed earnestly because of their slavery. They prayed earnestly for a mighty deliverer to come and to rescue them. And even though many prayers died, none of the prayers actually died because they continued on and God heard their groaning. And God remembered the covenant. And God looked upon the misery of his people. And God responded with care and compassion. I've mentioned before that the reason why I pray is because I'm convinced that God hears. The scripture says that God heard their prayers. God did not turn a deaf ear to the prayers of his suffering children. Many times theology is communicated to us in narrative, in story. So we know who God is and what he is because of the stories that he gives to us. And here in Exodus chapter 2, he gives us a tremendous story. And consistently in this story, it communicates that God is a God who listens. He never turns a deaf ear to the suffering of his children. That's true in those days. It's still true today. God never is deaf. God never stops listening. You cry out to him and I promise you, he hears. God heard the groans of his children. It also says he remembered. God is not an absent-minded professor. God does not have holy amnesia. God does not forget where he placed you. God remembers. And what did he remember? He remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Now that's a powerful statement. God remembered the covenant. That word covenant means promise. God never enters into a contract with us. He always enters into a covenant with us. Say, pastor, what's the difference? Well, a contract is between two parties. And both sides or both parties have to keep up their end of the bargain. If at any point one side or the other fails in his or her responsibilities, then the contract is null and void. God does not enter into a contract with you, my friend. Why? Because he knows that neither you nor I can keep up our end of the bargain of holiness. He knows that we cannot be perfect. There's no way that we can do all the requirements and the responsibilities that he has set out for us. So God says, I am not going to set you up for failure. I'm not going to set up a contract between me and you. I'm going to set up a covenant between us a covenant is a unilateral agreement it's one party one side who says to somebody else I will make good on all the requirements and all the promises that's what God did to Abraham Isaac and Jacob right for what did God say to Abraham I will make you into a great nation I will bless those who bless you I will curse those who curse you all the nations of the world will be blessed through you who's doing the work God Is Abraham doing much of anything? Nope. Why? He's just the recipient of the covenant. He's the one who's receiving the unilateral presence and promise of God. God says, I will make you into a great nation. He does not say to Abraham, you got to make yourself into a great nation. He does not say, you uh, are the the one who's going to bless everybody. But he says, I'm the one who will bless the entire world through you. God enters into a covenant with you, my friend, not a contract. Contracts can be broken, covenants cannot. God enters into a covenant with you and it's a unilateral covenant where he does all the work, he fulfills all the responsibilities, he completes all the requirements and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's in that, it's it's that mindset that God remembers. God remembers the covenant. He will never forget it. If you have entered into a relationship with God in Christ and you've entered that covenantal relationship, it's a relationship that cannot be severed, it cannot be broken. It's a relationship where God says, I will do all the work. So here, God says, not only have I heard the groaning, but I've remembered the covenant. He also says, I will look upon the misery of the Israelites. God never turns a blind eye to the suffering of his children. Let that sink in. God will never turn a blind eye towards your suffering. Does God care? Absolutely. Does God know? Absolutely. Does God see what's going on in your world? Absolutely. God looks. He never turns a blind eye towards your suffering. And then it says God is concerned. I'm concerned about them. That word concern is the word for compassion. I have a great deal of compassion for them. When Jesus walked this sod, he is God in the flesh. And when he stands in front of the tomb of Lazarus, we are told that his inside guts shook with compassion. What a vivid term that he had, that his guts were shaking because he was so moved with compassion and concern. This is the portrait of God. This is how God responds to the suffering of his children. His guts shake. The inside of God is moved. And not just moved to say, you know what? I'm really sorry that you're going through that. But moved to action. When it says he is concerned, it means he is concerned to the point of doing something about it. This is our God, isn't it? This is how great and awesome our God is. 
He's a God who's not deaf. He hears your prayers. He is a God who is not forgetful. For he remembers the covenant, the promise that he's made with you in Christ. Ours is a God who's not blind. For he looks upon your suffering. The suffering that takes you hostage, that breaks into your house. And our God is moved to compassion. To the point that his guts shake. The inside of God flips, turns upside down when he sees the misery of his children. He is moved to the point of doing something about it. See, you and I think that God is tardy. I came to tell you that God is timely. I mean, we think that God is tardy. We think he's late. We think God needs to show up. God needs to do something. God needs to flex his muscles. God needs to answer my prayer. God needs to deliver me from the crisis, the confusion, or the situation. God needs to do something. He needs to show up. And because he hasn't shown up yet, he's tardy. No, he's not tardy. He's timely. Our God is right on time. He raised up Moses right on time. He delivered the Israelites right on time. He caused them to cross the Red Sea right on time. He showed up on Mount Carmel with Elijah right on time. He showed up and shut up the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den right on time. He appeared with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace right on time. Ours is a God who shows up right on time. He raised up Esther right on time. He's the one who imposed the self-gag order and lifted it from Malachi to uh, Matthew right on time. He's the one that sent Jesus through the birth canal of a virgin girl in a Bethlehem barn right on time. He's the God that nailed Jesus to the cross right on time. He's the God that raised him from the dead right on time. He's the God that caused Jesus to ascend into the heavens right on time. He's the God who's going to come back one day right on time. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 it says in the fullness of time God sent his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive full rights as sons and daughters of God you may think that God is tardy I came to tell you that he's timely our God is right on time you say but pastor he doesn't feel like he's right on time I'm still in my suffering Many of the Hebrews were still in their suffering. But in that right moment, at that perfect time, God showed up. I wonder this morning, where do you live in Exodus chapter 2? I think all of us are there somewhere. Every single one of us somewhere in Exodus chapter 2. Some of you may be living in a lap of luxury. You got a nice house. You got nice cars. You got some money in your pocket and money in your bank account. And soon you're going to get a big fat check from the government of the United States of America in a tax refund. Life is good, right? You're living in a lap of luxury. But then there are others of us. And you may be struggling with an identity crisis. What do I mean by that? I mean, you don't know who you are or whose you are. You're acting out of that confusion of not knowing who you are and who you belong to. You've got an identity crisis. That's what Moses had. And there are many people here. We act out in a very worldly way simply because we don't know who we belong to. We don't know who we are. We don't know whose we are. Maybe some of you here, and let's just be honest, you're trying to bury your sin in the sand. 
You're just like the moon. You got a dark side that you don't want anybody to see. You got a secret you don't want anybody to know about. And so you spend a lot of time, mental energy, just trying to bury your disobedience. Sticking the sin in the sand. Oh, there's some of us that are on our way to Midian. That place of suffering and turmoil, strife. Some of you may even feel like you've been living in Midian for 40 years. You've been there a long time. You feel as if you're in a dead-end job with a a dead-end boss. You come home and it's a dead-end family. Things aren't going the way you ever visualized. You feel as if you are living in Midian and you feel as if you're a misfit, out of place, out of touch, out of sorts. And you think to yourself, God, where are you in all of this? Does my suffering go unnoticed by you, oh God? Oh, there may be times that you find yourself in Midian and you've been there for a long time. This morning, regardless of where you are in Exodus chapter 2, just cry out to God. Cry out to him. Why? Because he hears. And because he remembers. And because he looks upon your misery, never turning a blind eye. And he is concerned about who you are, how you are, and where you are. You cry out to him. He'll listen. You remember one of the first songs that you ever learned was Jesus Loves Me, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. This one who loves you so much, 2,000 years ago, had a Midian moment. He hung on a cross. And in the middle of those seven statements, that fourth statement, Jesus declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of dereliction. It's a statement of abandonment. It is God, don't you care? God, have you forgotten where you placed me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you placed me in Midian? Why have you placed me in this place of turmoil, struggle and strife? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He expected God the Father to answer, but God said nothing and God did nothing for the rest of Friday and all day on Saturday. But early Sunday morning, God the Father responded, raised Jesus from the dead because of what God did in Christ on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We can declare that Jesus is Lord on Monday and he is sovereign on Tuesday and he is supreme on Wednesday And he is mighty on Thursday. And he is majestic on Friday. And he is the righteous redeemer on Saturday. And he is the great glorious deliverer on Sunday. What I'm trying to tell you is God in Jesus never takes a day off. He's always on his throne. He's always in charge. He's always looking and he's always seeing. He knows who you are. He knows how you are. He knows where you are. And even with you, find yourself struggling and suffering in Midian. God knows where you are. You may think he's tardy. I came to tell you he's timely and God knows and God knows so this morning cast all your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you does God care yes does God know where you are absolutely does he know the suffering that you've been going through not just for days or weeks but decades does he know Yes, he does. 
And he wants you to cry out to him because he will hear you. And he will remember the promise that he made for you in Christ. Never to be broken. It's a covenant, not a contract. And he will never turn his blind eye toward you because he looks upon you and he sees with vivid clarity what you're going through. And he's concerned. His guts shake over your suffering. He is so concerned. He is so compassionate. It will move him to action. But when, pastor? I don't know when. I don't know when. But I just know that he will move. He will act. How do I know this? Because my theology is built on these stories. Stories of the book. Stories of the Old Testament. This is the God of my life. This is the God of your life. He is a God who hears and remembers and looks and is concerned. So trust him. And cry out to him. And he will respond. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And God, there's some of us that find ourselves in the very dry, arid desert of Midian. Oh, that place of turmoil and struggle. We don't know how we're going to make it the rest of the day, let alone tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to cry out to you today. Wherever we find ourselves in Exodus 2, let us cry out to you. And, oh, Father, I pray that if there's one here listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, that today will be the day of their salvation. If there's some marriage that needs to be mended, if there's some family that needs to be restored, if there's an individual that needs to come and join this church, Father, whatever you're leading us to do, help us to respond in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.